Professor Walter R. Newell is a political theorist and historian of ideas. He specializes in the history of tyranny, ancient times to the present. He's written about Rousseau, Marx, Nietzsche, and Heidegger. He studied the French Revolution, communism, national socialism, and contemporary Russian Eurasianist nationalism. His many books, which have been translated into Italian, Portuguese, Turkish, Korean, and Kurdish, include Tyranny and Revolution, Tyrants, A History of Power, Injustice and Terror, and Tyranny, A New Interpretation. He's a professor of political science, philosophy, and humanities at Carleton University in Ottawa. Recently, he also became an adjunct fellow at FDD. I'm Cliff May, FDD senior fellow. Wellmark Correct is here too. We're looking forward to talking with Professor Newell, and we're all pleased you're joining us here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So, Professor Newell, welcome, and let's, you know, let's start with a little about you. I mean, you're you're a Canadian. And that's okay. Um, Canadians are so... Canadians are so nice. So what got you interested in bad guys? I think uh, going back to my childhood, uh, growing up in small town Ontario, my father was English. My mother was Canadian. My father and all his brothers served in World War II. My mother's family all served in World War II. So we sort of grew up in the shadow of the Third Reich. And, of course, that was the era of the first Cold War and nuclear peril. So it was already very much in the air that there were bad people and good people uh, in international relations. And then when I became a student, an undergraduate, I studied the history of political theory. I was very interested from early on in the legitimate bounds of honor-seeking in contrast with tyranny. I was exposed to Leo Strauss's famous debate with Alexander Kojev about the meaning of modern tyranny, whether it differed from ancient. But then that was kind of galvanized by my exposure to Solzhenitsyn, Mm. whose books on the Gulag Archipelago I completely devoured. And I would say I learned from those books in particular, you know, that In the 1950s, we all had this benign liberal upbringing where people, our teachers told us, well, communism is fine as an ideal. It's just the means chosen to implement it are bad, like the Soviet Union. But from reading Solzhenitsyn, I realized that the ideal of communism is itself evil, and therefore any means chosen to implement it would become evil. And that's really how it took off. And 
For many years, I confined myself to being an academic scholar. When a journalist friend of mine said, you know, a lot of people are interested in these topics like tyranny, honor-seeking, the manly virtues. Why don't you try writing for a broader audience? And, and that's basically what I did. Um, you know, how do you, how, do you, how do you define a tyrant? I mean, is it just a cruel and oppressive ruler? Is, is there more to it than that? Is there a classical definition? How do you, let's define our terms here. Well, I mean, the, the classical definition of, of tyranny would simply be lawless rule over unwilling subjects. I would say that there's two, two ways of thinking about tyranny. One would be on the level of a regime principle. In other words, there are governments that are explicitly constituted as one-party states, as dictatorships, as Marxist-Leninist states or de facto presidents for life. But then on the other hand, there is the tyrannical personality and the temptation to tyrannize, the longing to tyrannize. Those people can, of course, emerge in the midst of democracy itself. So it's both a matter of studying tyrannical regimes at that level, but it's also a matter of understanding the inner psychology of people who might be tempted to tyrannize if they got the chance. Now, in, in academia, you're, you're in the academy, this concept of tyranny and tyrants, it's not popular, is it? I mean, it's, it's sort of viewed as value-laden, and I think authoritarian would be a pre preferred term. Am I, am I right about that? It's not popular because, ostensibly, it's not value-neutral and descriptive. Mm -hmm. it, it contains a moral judgment, and so... Yes, as you say, indirect terms like totalitarianism, authoritarianism are preferred. But I think lurking behind that disinclination to just use the full-blooded term tyranny is the feeling that who are we in the West to judge? And aren't we, in fact, among the world's leading oppressive powers? And so I think you've got, <laughs> you've got that there as well. Yeah, I do. And, and here's something else. And Ruel, you might want to come in on this a little bit. And that is that those who take this, view, those who have ingested this view uh, in academia, uh, they go on into political life and they are likely to believe that, look, we're dealing with rational actors. And if they're rational actors, they can be seduced. They can be bribed. Surely they are like us. They prefer to have money spent on a top notch national health care system. And maybe have a good hotel room at Davos uh, for, for those wonderful meetings. They'd rather do that, surely, than send young men young men off to die in a war of conquest. And I, what I'm suggesting is that that's sort of well. For example, how Obama looked upon Ruel looked upon uh, the supreme leader of Iran. Um, I think it's uh, it's how a lot of presidents, probably at both parties, have looked at Putin until recently, and that's how. A lot of people today look at Xi Jinping, not least business leaders who want to continue to do business there. Surely they're going to be like us, and surely we can have a rational discussion, and sh surely we can find a way to have win-win uh, outcomes. Well, I mean, I think in the Western tradition, you modern Western tradition, uh, you know, a man is increasingly seen as, you know, homo economicus. So, 
uh, is you either have Marxism on one side, you have capitalism on the other. Both sides are agreeing upon an economic, you know, common denominator. Uh, and so when you reach, find individuals who aren't thinking primarily economically, and I, and I actually don't think we do either, but uh, certainly when you, when you have individuals who I think could properly be called ideologues, uh, you know, economics takes a backseat, if not as a minor consideration. And it's very difficult for Westerners to deal with that because it seems so foreign. In the same sense, it's very difficult for Westerners to deal with people who are truly religious because even though we once were during Christendom, uh, we've left that, uh, for most of us, pretty f deeply buried in the DNA. Well, um, well and, and I think this was in your tablet article, good magazine, it's a good publication, it's a good article. You wrote the following, the last century witnessed the rise of history's most tyrannical aggressors including Stalin, Hitler, Mao, and Khomeini. In each case, rationalist-oriented Western policymakers thought that the economic self-interest of tyrants would deter them from all-out war. This uh, kind of picks up on this point that Rouault was just making. I, but I'm curious to know, other, among the other tyrants of recent years, would you agree Pol Pot, certainly Mao, Idi Amin, Muammar Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, they were, they, surely those are all tyrants as well, right? Yes, in my view. Yeah. And are, are, how about this? Are all conquerors tyrants by definition? Was Genghis Khan a tyrant? How about Alexander the Great? How about Napoleon? Well, here's where you get into an interestingly ambiguous topic, which is the topic of whether some form of tyrannical rule can actually have constructive outcomes. Mm. And that's a debate going right back to Plato, Xenophon, and Aristotle, who asked, is tyranny as lawless rule simply and always and uniformly to be condemned? Or might there be some forms of despotism that are both rational and benevolent? So like in Book 9 of Plato's Republic, you get the famous denunciation of tyranny as a kind of erotic monster, a kind of Nero or Caligula. But then in Xenophon's Cyropodia, you get the idealization of Cyrus the Great as a kind of rational despot ruling according to Socratic principles. So figures like Napoleon both rise, you can say, on a mountain of corpses, and yet arguably they did, or in his case, he did enact genuine reforms that brought the more moderate Girondist version of the French Revolution to the rest of Europe, um, helped establish uh, equal rights for women, uh, helped establish the uh, civil liberties for Jews. So those are very complex cases, and it's, it's very hard as a matter of judgment sometimes to draw the line. Julius Caesar, another figure like this, and, you know, in the case of all these, these reforming tyrants, it, it, it does often go hand in hand with imperialism and with conquest, not only because the ruler wants that kind of glory, but because they genuinely believe in their own. I, I, might, I might throw one thing in there. I mean, I, when you're dealing with traditional expansionist states, uh, you know, they often can have a lot of interlocking formal ties and bonds 
that in fact break what we would call tyranny. I mean, the Ottoman sultans come into that category uh, in that there are there were a lot of uh, traditional habits, customs established over centuries that essentially said no to the sultan. And he had to abide by those rules. So there was a rule-based system. He's at the top of it. Uh, but uh, he does not exercise uh, unilateral and unquestioned authority. Well, let me complicate this a little bit further. If we're talking about lawlessness as one aspect of tyranny, both Khomeini and Khamenei as as their supreme leaders, um, but they are trying to establish very specific laws as opposed to all others. They're against secular laws, therefore their version of Sharia law, of Islamic law. In fact, their goal is to establish Sharia law, which they believe to be God's law, not man's law, globally throughout the world. Countries like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, they must uh, adhere to the law as they see it. So they're not lawless, but um, but they are. I think well, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, just to use the, the Iranian case, what makes them different in an Islamic setting is that uh, the supreme leader, and it's so written in the Constitution, has the authority to overrule Islamic law. And he can. Uh, so the, you know, the Islamic Islamic law is practiced in a lot of different places by Western standards. I think mo- most of us would find it quite objectionable. But it does constitute a system that has survived for centuries. And in most instances, I would say it doesn't produce a tyrannical society. Uh, However, when you introduce a revolutionary setting, as you had with uh, Iran, uh, then a lot of these things, I mean, they violate Islamic law all the time. So on the basis of fatwas, on the basis of uh, interpretations and opinions on the law. In other words, they don't do it simply by fiat. No, the Supreme Leader doesn't have to cite this sources. Why. No, he can simply he rule. He doesn't have to. Uh, right. That's why, I mean, he's he actually actually used the term that came initially from the Pahlavis, which is Rahbah, which is the Supreme Leader. And uh, it, it it is not law-bound, uh, which just makes it different from, you know, more severe Islamic states, say, um, in the Saudi system, I mean, the kings in the Saudi system could overrule the uh, the, the ulama, the religious scholars, and we know that MBS is doing that right now. So there are there, you know, there it's but the revolutionary injection that you see in Iran is is really quite new. I, I think we can add to that as well that. If you look at the history of Islamism, going back to Syed Qutb and um, the Muslim Brotherhood, that the twin aim of that movement has always been to, first of all, establish a truly Islamic regime. There has to be a state, and then that state is the platform for the spread of that Islamic revolution to other countries. So far, the most successful example of this combo has been Iran. For a time, the ISIS caliphate appeared to be establishing the same thing. But if you look at the charters of all of these organizations like Hamas, Hezbollah, they combined this desire for a truly Islamic state as the springboard to the eventual establishment of a worldwide caliphate. 
And I think we should also note that in a certain sense, the pure Islamic community allegedly being returned to is something of a historical fantasy. Uh, as Rao was remarking, there's actually centuries of experience in statecraft under, say, the Ottoman Empire and the other caliphates, but they never really revert to that. In, instead, they have this mythical version of an, of an 8th century, allegedly pure, Islamic community. And then tying back, uh, Cliff, to your, to your earlier remark, I, I would say as far back as the French Revolution, the Jacobin Revolution, its concomitant has always been imperialism, not only as self-protection, but actually because they believe in their mission and they want to spread the blessings of that mission to the rest of Europe. Right, right. Uh, this this is what occurs to me, and tell me if it's off, off base. So throughout most of history, We've had rulers. The world has had rulers. People have been ruled. Now, America, since it rose to prominence following World War II, has tried, it seems to me, not to be a ruler, but to be a leader instead, to have American-led, rules-based order. We know what the rules are. It wouldn't be lawless. It would have benefits for all. The message we're getting from Putin, it seems to me, from Vladimir Putin, and from Xi Jinping, and from... um, Ali Khamenei, is that era is over. Um, We don't recognize you as our leader. We don't recognize your rules. We will not play by your rules. And we challenge you to make us because we don't think you will. And and I think that's what very much, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but recent comments from Vladimir Putin about Russian sovereignty and about Peter the Great taking land from Sweden, and nobody wanted to recognize that, but now they do, St. Petersburg is on such land. What he was saying is, you foreigners, Americans, you're not making rules for us anymore. It's over. Xi Jinping is more cleverly, I think, doing this, partly by saying, I can take over the architecture of the rules-based order. I can take over the the UN international organizations, whether it's the World Health Organization or the UN Human Rights Council, and make that and bend them to my will because I am going to be the ruler. Am I am I far off in the in seeing that? Well, I I would I would only add to that that I think in the case of people like Xi or Putin and those around them, on a certain level, they really believe they have a superior way of life to ours. It, it's right. not all cynical. Um, now, of course, there are degrees of cynicism and naked self-interest. Of course, we all know that. But that doesn't preclude a sincere conviction, uh, right? You know, like uh, Adolf Hitler's biographer, uh, Joachim Fest, once described Hitler as national socialist number one. In other words, no one believed more fervently in that ideology than he did. And if you look at uh, Putin's ideological sidekick, Svengali, some would say, uh, Alexander Dugan, eventually he says the benefits of Russian greatness will be extended to all of us, right? I mean, he Mm -hmm. addressed a letter to workers in America saying, brothers and sisters, you're not our enemies. It's the capitalist plutocrats, and we want to help liberate you from them. Um, I want to, I'm going to come back to Dugan and some of the other um, influences on, on Putin in a second. I want to digress for one moment, but I do want to get this in. 
I, you know, I'm, when I was thinking of having this conversation with you, the Latin phrase came to mind, sick semper tyrannis, right? Which can be translated as thus always to tyrants. Now, it was attributed to Brutus, one of the people who assassinated Julius Caesar. Though I think most Americans probably know it more infamously as what John Wilkes Booth is believed to have said after assassinating Abraham Lincoln. And I guess he thought Lincoln a tyrant for defeating the Confederacy and destroying that way of life. That's my best guess. Um, and he saw nothing apparently tyrannical in the institution of slavery. And also, I didn't know this until it happens to be currently the motto of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Which is it? All right. All right. Having digressed on that for a second, I'll come back to this, which, this idea you were just talking about that tyrants think of themselves as I often as idealists pursuing utopian dreams, however lethal or even genocidal to those that they don't see fitting into the brave new world they intend to, to create. Um, are there, is it fair to talk about tyrannical ideologies? I mean, you write in, in your book, Tyrants, that modern tyrants and conquerors since Robespierre have been bolstered by an ideology. Is it not just the person that's a tyrant, but their belief system? When you say they have belief systems, they may have faith systems, as Ruel is pointing out, they may be men of faith. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not end up as tyrants. Is the I, I guess you already said, in the way you answered that, when you said that communism is an, a tyrannical ideology, no matter how idealistic those pursuing it may be. Is that, have I got you correctly on that? Yeah, I, I think the deep paradox we have to grapple with is that, you know, beginning around 1750, when Lockean liberalism was barely off the ground, so to speak, some of the best minds in Europe conceived an intense loathing for the entire modern project and the Enlightenment, beginning with Rousseau, uh, a nostalgia for the lost communality of the ancient polis. And you had a whole succession of people, starting with Hegel, including Marx, Nietzsche, and Heidegger, who all posited an increasingly millenarian and utopian vision of a future perfect collective as the only possible antidote to the irredeemable spiritual degradation, greed, and materialism of modern liberalism. Now, did they all intend genocidal states? I, I don't think you can say that. But you can say that the character of their rhetoric was so inflammatory so extravagant and their hatred of modernity so pronounced that people like Robespierre and later Lenin and Hitler were bound to cherry pick in their writings and find things that they could use to embellish their own drive for power. And so it's a fascinating question. This is what my new book is about, whether and to what extent people like Marx, Nietzsche, and Heidegger are culpable or not for the way in which their own writings were used. And I think you have to say that there's no clear answer. Um, to, to an extent, they are culpable, even if they did not intend anything like the horrors of Marxism, Leninism. And I, I think you could add to that that, I mean, there's a whole body of thought out there that dominated much of the world, uh, whether you want to call it monarchism, 
that is obviously seriously at odds with the liberal enlightenment individualist tradition of the West. And um, I mean, these individuals are often passionate in their beliefs. They're not uh, uh, totalitarians by any stretch of the imagination, but they are hostile to Western traditions. Mm-hmm. Who do you have in mind here? Well, I mean, I- any of the monarchical rulers uh, are uh, are by definition uncomfortable with democracy and will easily align themselves with uh, dictatorial systems because democracy in general uh, is uh, convulsive. It is for them potentially revolutionary. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's not surprising that. You know, you have, I'm just saying, you have centuries, millennia of people passionately believing in systems of thought that have nothing to do with, uh, you know, democratic principles and and individualism. These things are very, very new. Uh, So, you know, you have to be careful about calling history illegitimate. Uh, And these folks have, I think they respond to something in human nature. In uh, it is an element, perhaps, in human nature that modern Western Democrats are uncomfortable with. We don't have many right. It's, it's currently. I mean, we're thinking of you know, Queen yeah, Elizabeth. In the West, you don't have. You don't in the West. You don't have any any uh, monarchs with real power. You go to the Middle East. Yet you you can you can still find monarchs with quite a bit of power. But monarchy in general has obviously taken quite a hit uh, since uh, modern times. But but there is a there is a real sense in which if if by natural rule we mean what occurs spontaneously on the most widespread scale, there's a very real way in which some form of con or tribal head rule, either at a small level or a huge level, is is still very, very prevalent Absolutely. in the non-Western world. And it Absolutely. and it's never stopped being prevalent, right? Like Going right back to Aristotle and the politics, Aristotle says, you know, we've got the Greek city-states, but most of the world around us, they're despotisms. They're, they're mm. multinational empires. Mm. Um, on Vladimir Putin, we've, uh, we've agreed that he is a tyrant, and I don't think that was understood by most people just a few years ago, necessarily. People thought it was, whether you ran Angela Merkel or you were George Bush, you thought he was somebody you could do business with, you could be transactional with, uh, it, it wasn't quite, I, I, and it was very interesting in the run-up to his invasion of Ukraine, a very respectable uh, Russia expert strongly disagreed on whether or not he was actually going to do it or whether or not this was only to gain some sort of leverage. People on both sides of it that I respect and who are you know, very smart. So the piece you wrote was called Vladimir Putin, Tyrant, very, pretty simple. And, you know, you noted it then this, I found this interesting in 2014, John Kerry uh, found Putin's invasion and conquest of Crimea very retro, uh, you know, unforgivably 19th century, out of fashion, kind of like a suit with wide lapels and bell-bottom trousers, sort of his, his, his view of it. And you noted that uh, in regard to Putin's most recent invasion, that Kerry was baffled. He lamented, you said, that the war would distract Putin from working with him on climate change, which is the fashionable guerre du jour, if I might, if I might use that term. Um, 
but he's really not understanding who he's dealing with, which is rather disturbing since he's been Secretary of State and now he is envoy for changing the temperature on the planet. Well, you know, I I can't prove this, but Condoleezza Rice remarked that she thought the Putin of today was a totally changed man from the cool-headed, steely pragmatist she had met. She deserves a lot of respect for her expertise, but with all due respect, I think Putin's always been that man. I think he was that man back then. Those plans were hatching. You know, uh, Dugan's rise to prominence only began when Putin took power uh, after Yeltsin. And, and that's not an accident, because I think that vision of a restored Russian empire of the Slavic peoples was already germinating in Putin's mind. And, so, um, right, right. So, so I think now's a good time to to move on to talking about that, about the, uh, the influences on Putin, ideological and intellectual. The most important probably is, as you say, Alexander uh, Dugan, who develop, has developed an ideology called Eurasianist National Bolshevism. It's quite a mouthful, you know, there, and I'm not quite sure how those all go together. Maybe start, there are other influences we should talk about, but, but perhaps he's the most important one. I, I know you've actually met Dugan, so you might want to yeah. talk a little bit about um, another of um, Putin's favorite writers is a man named Berdyaev, who Nikolai Berdyaev, yeah, yeah, he he began as a loyal Marxist and follower of the revolution, but he was repelled by it, and he became a kind of Christian existentialist, also with these uh, Slavophilic um, o- o- overtones, mm. and yeah. So, and here's the thing about one of the things about Dugan that you write about. Um, yes, he wants Russia's salvation in the world, and that must begin with the recovery of lost territory, in particular Ukraine and perhaps Moldova. He's already got, I think, Belarus pretty much locked up under Lukashenko. Um, but you write that is only the beginning. This is a very important point for Americans to take in. That is only the beginning because you write the long range goal is world war between Russia and the United States, the leader of the bourgeois West. Preparing for that war involves Eurasianism, making an alliance with radical Islam. For Alexander Dugan, the hostility of Islamists to Christianity is outweighed by their loathing for Western materialism and individualism. Uh, that is uh, hugely important because I don't think many people, uh, including people in Washington at the highest levels, understand this alliance that's being formed between Putin and Khamenei uh, in uh, Tehran. And, of course, an uh, alliance that's been formalized between Putin and Xi Jinping. It was formalized on February 4th, just 20 days before the invasion. A coincidence, comrade. Yeah, and I think it's germane to note here that what Dugan envisions, and I think Putin shares these views, is nothing at all resembling a return to Soviet communism. Uh, Neither of them approved of Soviet communism. Putin's been very clear about that. Yes, the loss of Soviet power was a catastrophe, but he has no intention of returning to Marxism-Leninism. And the way that they have recast Russian history is to say that 
The true authentic Bolshevik revolution was actually an agrarian, peasant-based movement. The Marxist-Leninist part was a foreign importation from Germany and the West of an over-rationalistic element that is at odds with the true Russian soul. And so that's how, that's how Dugan is able to massage Bolshevism and nationalism and Eurasianism as all part yeah, of the now, same. I, I might add, I, I don't think right. uh, the Russians, Putin has any sympathy for Islamism. I think they have just a completely different experience with Muslims than do we in the most in the West. Uh, I think it's accurate to say the Russians have killed more Muslims than any other Europeans. Uh, and they don't fear it. And for good cause, for many reasons, is they're not really been targeted. Uh, I mean, if you if you look at, uh, you know, the important seminal Islamist thinkers of the 20th century, 21st century, now I'm not sure there's anyone seminal in the 21st century, uh, I mean, the direction is always against the West because the West is what corrodes the, the, the Muslim soul. Russia doesn't corrode the, corrode the Muslim soul. So I think you have an alliance of interests. And I do believe I have a, the comment that was told to me that a senior Polish official uh, was talking with Putin and they were talking about the nuclear question in Iran, to which Putin said, you know, the, the Israelis will deal with that. Uh so it, it, it wasn't something, the alignment against the United States was what was important. It's not uh, an overlapping sympathy for Islamism as a philosophical proposition outside of its anti-Westernism. It, yeah, it's a marriage of convenience, I think. But this quick digression, because I'm curious about this. Putin did brutally uh, suppress Chechen, which is also Muslim separatism and independence. And at this point, he is utilizing Chechens in Ukraine. And they are said to be, I mean, just as eager to kill Ukrainian Christians as they possibly could be, which is just fine with Putin. That's, uh, it, it's interesting that he has been able to turn some of them. Uh, so, I mean, you would think the Chechens would just despise him, but he has found Chechen, I guess you could say Quislings, who are very much um, joining him in this in this Russian Slava Slavophile endeavor. Well, I mean, Russian imperialism had a number of Muslim allies. Well, it had to. I mean, people don't. This is something that people don't realize about Russia. Russia is a very big country, but it's it's not really. It's never been a, na a nation state. Doesn't want to be a nation state. It always wanted to be an empire. It is an empire. It moved east, and there are any number of minorities. Some of them Muslim, some of them Buddhist, some of them other things that it simply took over and has ruled. Most people couldn't even name three of the Siberian peoples, uh, the Tuvi or these various that, that Russia has taken over, but they're, they're not necessarily, they speak Russian, doesn't make them necessarily Russian, but they are part of the Russian empire, whether or not they are trying to separate from them. In most cases, I think they are not. They are, they were successfully suppressed and they accept their, their fate that they're being ruled by the Kremlin and some of them rise to, uh, to fairly high levels within the government I mean, as a result. I mean, I think it's I think it's accurate to state. I, I, I don't read Russian, so I pause here whether I've seen enough to really know. But I, in what I have seen, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't describe Putin as a bigot. Uh, I mean, he, he the speeches I have seen him give on issues of multi-ethnicity, 
I, I wouldn't describe them as enlightened, but I would I'd say they're well within the Russian imperial tradition. When when we look um, well, when we look at, at at Putin's ideology, and we talk about its longing for a, a mythical past, its militancy, its ruthlessness, it sounds like we're talking about fascism. Is that is that also fair to say that this gets very close to fascism in its and again, it's fascist is a hard term and you're talking that because we use it for anybody we don't like and it means a lot of different things and fascism is not absolutely synonymous with Nazism, they overlap. But talk about to what extent Putin is fascist. Well, I certainly would maintain that Dugan's thought is fascistic through and through and Proof of that is his deep connection to the thought of Martin Heidegger from the 1920s and 30s. And Dugan is actually quite a decent Heidegger scholar. He actually <laughs> knows what he's talking about. Um, do, you, do you know why I'm curious about that? Do you know how, if that, it's a stupid question, I suppose, but how did he discover Heidegger? What was he doing that Heidegger come, came into his radar and that he then became so attached? That I don't know. I only know that from the very first revelation of his grand geopolitical strategy for Russia, he began using Heideggerian terms like existence and commitment, the Russian destiny, and it's, it's all really lifted from Heidegger's notion in the 30s that the German people were the kind of redemptive people of all mankind who would throw off the shackles of the two superpowers and lead the peoples back into their rootedness. And Dugan, in a sense, has simply transferred that role of the salvational people to Russia. And he claims that he represents what's called the fourth stage after national socialism, fascism. He says that that represents the third stage. This is the fourth stage. But that's based on, I think, a misleading assertion that fascism's main principle was biological racism. And that's how he's able to say that the kind of nationalism he's talking about has nothing to do with biological racism. But frankly, I think that's a bit of a sophistry. I, I think his thinking simply is fascistic at its core. I mean, uh, Nazism... Um thinks about nationalism in racial terms, but Mussolini's fascism, less so, am I wrong? That's correct. And there were also many fellow travelers and collaborators with the National Socialist regime who did not necessarily embrace the doctrine of biological racism. Heidegger himself, for example, conspicuously never embraced that kind of what he would have seen as a kind of pseudo-scientific, materialistic approach to human existence. On the other hand, there were other followers of Hitler, like Carl Schmitt, who, who avidly embraced the whole program of racial cleansing and that, that kind of pseudo-Darwinian uh, biological premise. So you, you could be a devout Nazi as Heidegger was, and not necessarily embrace that part of the ideology. I, I, there's something I, I meant to, I have some vague memory of, and, but, but not quite clear, but you may be able to help me. It is that Putin is a, was a fan of, we talked about Solzhenitsyn before and how and, and 
I, I'm a great fan of Solzhenitsyn and his writing, brilliant writings. Putin is somewhat of a fan of Solzhenitsyn. Men at once point, it's not clear that Solzhenitsyn reciprocated the admiration. Do I have that right? I would never put Solzhenitsyn in the same camp as um, Dugan or Putin's Slavophilism. To me, Solzhenitsyn was calling on both the West and the East to rise higher. That was that was the the outcome of the famous Harvard address. Not everyone in the U.S. liked that address because we assumed he was now on our side. What he was saying, in in a way, was that. Both these systems of government are defective and have to aim to a higher spiritual plateau. And I just, there, there's also something of, of, of cosmopolitan genius in Solzhenitsyn's writings, his fiction. He can be mentioned in the same breath with Tolstoy. I'm not necessarily putting him on an equal basis, but that breadth of spirit I just don't find anywhere in Putin's ideology or that of Dugan. And and I wanted to add this, what you were saying about um, Putin not being a Marxist, Leninist, not liking communism. People misunderstand that because he said it was a great tragedy, the greatest tragedy of the 21st century if the Soviet Union collapsed. But the Soviet Union was the Russian Empire reconstituted and rebranded at a time when other empires, after the First World War in particular, Ottoman Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Second Reich, the German Empire, they had all collapsed. And so he was saying that the collapse of the Russian Empire, he did what he did admire about Stalin, it, it, it seems to me, tell me if I'm wrong, is two things. One is that Stalin was ruthless <laughs> and he wants to, and he thinks that's what a, a, a ruler needs to be. Second, of course, during World War II, you couldn't get Russians, you couldn't get Soviet citizens to sacrifice to save, for the sake of communism. So Stalin became a, a, suddenly became a born-again nationalist talking about Rodina, the people, talking about the fatherland, not the motherland, the fatherland. People often misunderstand that. Um, and uh, in a way, that's Putin seeing Stalin coming back to these uh, pan-Slavic, pan-Russian roots. I, I think that's the way he interprets that. Am I, does that sound right to you? I, I totally agree. I think Stalin has been rehabilitated because of the great patriotic war. And as you said, Stalin himself, quite deliberately evoked those sorts of traditional values. When he addressed people on the radio, he stopped calling them comrades. He started saying brothers and sisters, you know, it was this more folkish language. And and so that's the sense in which in which Stalin's reputation has been cleaned up uh, and 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 retained. And it's important, and this gets back to something else we said before, because Stalin being uh, a patriotic, uh, nationalistic, hyper-nationalist Russian is interesting because, of course, he was Georgian. He wasn't Russian. His first language wasn't Russian. It's not even a language related to Russian. Uh, he was part of the Russian Empire, and he had adopted. I mean, he's. I, I believe uh, my Russian's not this good that he he entirely got rid of his Georgian accent. Actually, it, it's, it's an interesting theme in political history, the importance of the outsider, mm. you know, like Napoleon being Corsican. Oh, right, of course. There's this, this longing to come somehow be truly accepted mm. by the metropole and, and 
the surest way of doing that is 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 taking it over. I think there's a long kind of pedigree of that kind of that kind of outsider or 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 Hitler of course being Austrian. Right. Oh, fascinating. Yes. A couple of other influences that you might want to, on Putin that I've seen referred to, you might want to tell us a little bit. One is uh, Sergei uh, Karaganov. If you, he, he um, I think you wrote about this that he wanted that he he talked about Westerners thinking, and this gets back to what you said before that Putin and 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 others are, you know, they, they, their motivations are economic, and they're not. they it's about mm. power and it's about pride. And the other one I had noted down was Ivan Ilyin, who was born in 1883 to an aristocratic family. Um, and he eventually be, he was referred to as a religious scholar, but he also welcomed back in the 1930s fascism as a rightful response to Bolshevism mm-hmm. and supported Hitler's aspirations. Uh, he bashed German Jews for their sympathy with communism. This gets back to mm-hmm. Hitler's idea of Jewish Bolshevism. Even at a time most Jewish Bolsheviks uh, had been killed or or sent to si- Siberia. Yeah, I, I I recently read a piece, and I can't remember where it was. Maybe maybe you saw it, which which talked about the whole generation of baby boomers in the former Soviet Union who now form the cluster of the most powerful men around Putin, and that. Mm. They all have a memory of the the Brezhnev era as a time when Soviet communism actually began to work in a certain kind of way. And they all share the view that what's happened since then with, with Gorbachev and with Yeltsin was a kind of catastrophic spiritual decline. And so it, it, it seems as if Putin himself is representative of a certain generation of people who have now risen to the supreme positions in the military, in intelligence, and in the security police. I wish I could remember the the author. He was a, a, a former CIA analyst, and he concludes by saying that um, if they do overthrow Putin, don't hold your breath that someone more liberal is going to take his place because the people around him just don't contain anyone like that. I mean, that, that's an interesting analysis looking at the Brezhnev period. I'd be curious to know whether he divides it early Brezhnev, later Brezhnev as a period of when it all starts to work, because you could also look at the Brezhnev period as when it really all starts to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I would say that it's, a kind of a fantasy to think that during the Brezhnev period it really worked. I was a I was I was an exchange student in Russia during the Brezhnev period, and I began writing about Russia during the Brezhnev period. I remember I did a cover story for Newsweek International: Why Things Don't Work in Russia, which had picture Brezhnev on like a puppet with a trying to create something and it was falling apart, and it was considered very offensive by the by the, by the Russians at that time. And I also remember when I was an exchange student there, and this is, I was at Leningrad State University at the same time that Putin was there. I don't know that we hung out together, but um, it, it was very hard for normal people to get, you know, meat. It was very hard. For, I mean, unless you had access to dollars, it was, there wasn't much to, to buy and things were, things were not particularly working well in 
Russia at that point. People would look to people like me, give them a pair of blue jeans and pick up some good booze and food and caviar at the, the Bouyoutne magazine there, the foreign, the hard currency store and, and go out with them. So it wasn't, it wasn't a great time that I, that by my recollection, certainly. That reminds me that my friend Charles Fairbanks, whom you may know, um, once came back from a trip to the Soviet Union during that era. And for fun, he brought back some groceries he had bought in Russia, in the Soviet Union, and he laid them out. And, you know, it was simply a tin that said soup, a tin that said meat. Mm. In other words, you weren't told what was actually in it. <laughs> just that that's the soup we have now, and this is the meat that we have now. Right, right. Uh, I'm, yeah, go ahead. The vodka I used to drink with uh, KGB and GRU officers would regularly just have in English written on it, rectified alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, um, I've got one more question for Waller, but maybe you have a couple, one or two things you want to ask. Well, I mean, it, it, it does bring up the issue on, on Russia now is to what extent, I mean, this is maybe just, you know, trying to get into the black box and we can't do it is to what extent that ideology that whatever it is, and I think it's quite fascist that, that Putin believes in, how deeply that same sentiment penetrates into Russian society. So is it does it have a deep base or is it actually fairly thin? And uh, I mean, it does his attempt to sort of amp up and use Russian nationalism, does that really have legs that he can run with or no? He's got he's got real trouble. I would just note, I mean, as far as I know, I mean, they still have resisted any attempt to call up Russian reserves, you implement the draft, uh, that the anxiety uh, on, on that issue seems to be, or concern, I should say, on that issue seems to be quite real. I don't know the answer. I guess I would be inclined to also turn it around and say, how deep could Enlightenment influences ever really extend in Russia either? Um, in a certain sense, wasn't Gorbachev a kind of, in a way, absurd attempt to square the circle of combining some form of Soviet and communist authority with something like a genuine civil society. So I, I don't know how far or for how long Russians will be willing to march down this path with Putin. But I guess I'm generally not optimistic about something replacing it that would be more like full-blown Western liberal democracy because it's just not really a part of their history. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I remember after the fall of the Soviet Union going back to Russia and meeting with journalists in particular about because now they were going to be free, or so they thought, and and being sort of skeptical. Um, and this and, and and this was not well considered that they would be able to make this transition to become a, a free society, much as everyone certainly wanted them to do so. Um, I remember giving a talk and saying, it, "It's you know." You, 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 can, you, you can find plenty of cookbooks that tell you how to make uh, omelets out of eggs. You can't find cookbooks that tell you how to make eggs out of omelets. 
and uh, that's sort of what you're trying to, to do here. Um, and I, and, they, and again, there was a lot of people took offense at that, that I was saying they, they, they weren't up to Western standards. In terms of what's happening now, I think there's two things, and it's just hard. To well, I mean, I should note that Western standards really weren't up to Western standards either until the uh, until the end of World War II, when the Americans and the Brits sort of said, "Now you will be up to these standards, or else." Mm. You know, my my, it's hard to get a good reading of what's going on in the Soviet going on in Russia. I think you know there are those who are who are supportive of this, who see that this that Russian greatness depends on on this endeavor. I think part of the reason Putin decided to do it now is getting to the stage of life where he's thinking, what is my legacy going to be? More money is not going to buy me anything. Um, I want to leave the restored Russia behind. I think I do think he thinks of himself as a kind of czar, and the czar's mission is to restore and expand the empire. That was Peter the Great's mission. It was Catherine the Great's mission. Ivan the Terrible's mission, essentially. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. And so I think he thinks of me. But I also think, and I've, I've heard that numbers of up to 400,000 well-educated young people who speak foreign languages, have skills that are transferable, saying, this is it. I'm going to Europe. I'm going to America. I'm going to Australia. I don't want any part of this. This is not going to work for me. And I I do have choices, so I'm going to exercise them. And that will have an influence on the country in the future if this, if some of their you know, the, the best and the brightest are now exiting the country because they don't want to be part of this, uh, this endeavor. I think so both things can be true at the same time. I think Americans tend to overestimate the ability of people to throw off tyrannical regimes. You can throw off some tyrannical regimes if they're not too tyrannical. Well, may disagree with me on this, but the Shah is not going to kill thousands of his own people in order to stay in power. Khomeini would have and did, and Khomeini is certainly willing to do so. I think that's, a, that's an important uh, distinction to look at. It's not easy. Xi Jinping can't be. He can be overthrown by the Politburo, perhaps, but not by the people. We like to think of that. But it, it, going up against the British Empire is very different than going up against the Nazis or the communists or the uh, or the Khomeinists. I so, mean, I, yeah, please. No one wants to live voluntarily under a, a tyrant. On the other hand, if they overthrow that tyrant, their main aim might be to replace it with yet another centralized and dictatorial authority, this time their own. So. And, re- and recall when Stalin died, how many Russians were, were, were shedding real tears over that. Oh, was the yes. They believed that he was the father. They believed that, that without him they were lost. That was, that was very real. Yes, Alexander Kozhev said he wept like a child the day he learned Stalin had died. So my exit question is this. Uh, here in America, the woke, as we call them, are arguing, or rather, I think, asserting, because they don't really make arguments, that, and, that those in the West that we have regarded as heroes really should be viewed as tyrants. So Washington, Thomas Jefferson had slaves, so they're not heroes. Tyrants, Churchill was an imperialist and a damn proud imperialist at that. So he uh, he should be seen as a tyrant. And among other things, that muddies the moral waters because, um, well, I mean, <laughs> you're essentially saying we're no better than them, so there's no reason to defend our society whatsoever or our way of life because our society is based on lies and tyranny just the same as theirs. And it's all, it's all, it's at the end of the day, it's a, a kind of moral equivalence that they're insisting upon. And uh, 
plenty of universities have adopted this. You, you're able to teach at a university. I, I, I'm not going to be invited to lecture, much less teach both universities nowadays. Well, just reflect upon that, the woke asserting that we have, that we are a nation born in tyranny. And that and the tyranny is systemic I mean, and continues to persist. Cliff, I would add one thing, though. It's not, it's, I mean, I think the, the woke are the cutting edge of that, but it's, it's not just the woke. I mean, uh, Donald Trump was rather f- notorious in his parallels with, with the Russians and with Putin saying that, you know, we've done a lot of evil things, too. Well, that's a fair point. And that, but that, but all the worse if, if, if on both sides of the political spectrum are people who don't think that this society is worth, uh, is worth defending. Well, I think what we're seeing is a massive kind of shutdown of any interest in the complexities of history or human nature. It's, it's always been known that figures like Winston Churchill had mixed characters, uh, that they had their own distaff sides. They were capable of very aggressive behavior. Lincoln, too. This was not unknown, but what we're seeing now is a kind of new, very simple-minded Puritanism that will simply abide no mixture of, of, of black and white in looking at the human character. And so we therefore lose a sense of how to make distinctions between lesser and better political alternatives. We lose any sense of psychological finesse whereby you could say, for example, that somebody like Robert E. Lee was on some levels an admirable man and widely admired. And yet his crucial failing, which set Lincoln above him, was that he was willing to put those gentlemanly virtues at the service of a terrible injustice. But if we don't think these things through, if, if statues of Lee are simply torn down. Um, one of the ironies of cancel culture is that future generations are going to wonder how could racism have ever taken place because there's no evidence that it took place, right? Like I used to walk by Calhoun College every day at Yale and wonder about how a college was named after the chief ideologue of the Confederacy here in the very heart of the Puritan Puritan abolitionist New England. Well, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and and um, now, though, they've, they've changed its name, and so people in the future walking by it won't be aware of any of these ironies or complexities, and this is a part of what we're sacrificing. Yes, we're sacrificing these complexities, and I've talked about this in the past. Slavery is a terrible institution, but it was the West that, that, under, that first arose morally to that conclusion and began to do something about it. And not to give credit for that seems to me to be missing not just the complexity, but, but more than that, the, uh, really the, well, well, more than that. I mean, you have to understand that. why do we believe that slavery is wrong? Why do we believe that racism was wrong? This wasn't believed in the past. It wasn't believed in many other societies. This required a certain moral evolution that took place first and foremost in the West. I'll take it a bit further. I've, I've suggested that it might be a characteristic of a truly great statesman like Churchill or Lincoln 
that they can have a kind of homeopathic taste of what it would mean to be a tyrant. And that's why they can <laughs> appreciate these people and see them coming, right? Like, like take, take Lincoln's famous Lyceum speech where he cult, contemplates the alternative of being the savior of the Republic or its destroyer and asks himself, which would be the greatest way of life? Now that we live in an age where great Caesarean, Alexandrian ambition has all been stunted, the age of the great founders is over. And he clearly flirted with that alternative of being the destroyer. But the way his life turned out, it became his destiny to be the great savior of the Republic. I always like that comment by Lincoln where he talks about that uh, that uh, one of the reasons you should embrace uh, American uh, capitalism is because it diverts the animalistic instincts that in other side, societies creates tyrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or take, right. take, take the fact that as, as late as 1935, writing about Hitler in Great Contemporaries, Churchill himself was not yet certain what Hitler was going to turn out to be. Could he turn out to be a a terrible tyrant and aggressor? Yes. Or could he simply be turn out to be a man who tried to restore the dignity of the German people? And as late as 1935, Churchill was wondering in print what the answer to that question would be. But he knew that to be careful um, and cautious, it was important for Britain to rearm cannot be unprepared oh, in oh. case this went badly. He knew right. that right at a time when Britain did well, not I mean, want to rearm. Yeah. I mean, if you read, go back and read with uh, George Orwell's uh, that essay on, on Hitler, on the appeal of Hitler, uh, it's quite striking because it's so thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's, it's be very hard to imagine a great public intellectual today capturing the complexity uh, of a tyrant in such a way that some would might even describe it as sympathetic. And, um, and it, you know, you need to be able to get into these things uh, pretty, pretty deeply. And uh, that as, as the professor said, I mean, we do seem to be a little bit at war with history and ourselves. Well, I think today we've made a, a good case, uh, at least for the importance of complexity. And I think that's a good, a good place to start and something we should continue because if FDD is dedicated to anything, it's dedicated to complexity. Um, and I'm glad, Walla, that we have you now uh, with, with us um, supporting this mission. So thank you for your, for your work. Thank you for your writing you've done and you're doing. And thank you for being with us today. It was my pleasure. I'd, Great. I'd yes, thank you. Good. Love to do it again. We will do it again. Thank you, Walter. Thank you, Ruel. And thanks to all of you who are with us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at FDD. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.